kids bring a smile to my face every time I see them. What a, what a wonderful opportunity for them to share their gifts, as Pastor James said. Uh, good, good just uh, report from Pastor James. I'm just so thankful for the generosity of this church. You know, as your pastor, um, there's nothing like us doing something together and seeing the church come together in a unified fashion it's really important in this day and age that we do things like that, and um, I'm just deeply encouraged uh, by the way that God's using this church, not just in this project, but in this community. Uh, this past Sunday or Friday, uh, we opened up the doors of the church, and it was like a safe haven from the cold. People came in, got hot chocolate. I can't tell you how many people came up to me, uh, and they just said, Pastor, thanks for opening the doors of the church. It meant something to them. So, you know, this is our story, our story to our community, to our family, and to our future. Uh, praise God for that. Well, as we open our sermon this morning, I thought it would be kind of fun if we would play a little game of odds. I want to flip a coin. Um, you get to pick the side, heads or tails. So someone shout out, heads or tails? All right. Heads, I win. Tails, you lose. <laughs> All right. Heads, I win. How do you like those odds? <laughs> you know, it's funny. When I was just a boy, uh, we used to play scrimmage football. And, of course, when you were the captain and you got to flip a coin for the coveted first pick, you wanted to kind of stack the, the odds in your favor just a little bit. So I'd be like, hey, let's flip the coin. Heads, I win. Tails, you lose. And I said it just like that. I said it as fast as I could so that their brain wouldn't register the words that were being said. Now, just to be honest with you, uh, it never worked out, not even one time. <laughs> you know, Mama used to say back in the day, right, cheaters never prosper. Um, but, you know, when you think about that, heads I win, tails you lose, that really is the idea, right? Stacking the odds in your favor. Not fair for scrimmage football when you're trying to pick teams, but great news if those represent the odds of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I think about this, it kind of helps me to contextualize, understand better a decision that Paul makes in the book of Acts. Now, in case you don't know the backstory to Paul's arrest, this takes place in Acts chapter 21 through 26. Paul has left a missionary journey and he is coming back to Jerusalem to bring gifts that have been given to the church in Jerusalem. He's also been undertaking a vow, so he goes to the temple to fulfill his vow. And while he's in the temple, a mob surrounds him and they accuse him of bringing Gentiles beyond the court of the Gentiles into the temple proper. In fact, they start beating Paul. Uh, the Roman guards get involved in the dynamic. Paul's placed under arrest. And then they make a murder plot. They try to kill Paul. Uh, the Romans are catch wind of what's going to happen. So Paul's taken over to Caesarea, another place, and he's put in jail and he's put there for two full years. In fact, he's there for so long that there's a change of administration. Uh, the governor, Felix, is replaced by another governor, Festus. 
And this new governor and his new administration, well, he thinks to himself, maybe I can curry some favor with the Jews. So maybe I will bring Paul back to Jerusalem so that he can have his trial there. In fact, he says to Paul, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me? Now, Paul knows that the odds in this arrangement are not good. Even if he is to make it to Jerusalem alive, it's highly likely that his life would be taken there. So very deliberately, he responds to Festus. No, this is the official Roman court, so I ought to be tried right here You know very well I am not guilty of harming the Jews. If I have done something worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. But if I am innocent, no one has a right to turn me over to these men to kill me. And then he says this, I appeal to Caesar. Now that's a trip. Uh, Paul must be relocated from Caesarea all the way to Rome. Uh, John Pollock, who wrote a wonderful biography on the life of Paul, called the apostle. I highly recommend it if you're interested in his life. He explains that a Roman citizen had an inalienable right of appeal to the emperor, a privilege not accorded other provincials. So Paul's appeal, though unexpected by Festus, was no sudden decision. Remember, he's been in prison for two years He had written a letter earlier to the Roman Christians and he'd said to them, I intend to come to Rome in order to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ here and have some fruit in this city center of the world. Now he couldn't have envisioned back then that he would be going under the the auspices of being arrested. But he makes a very decisive choice in this moment. I appeal to to Caesar? Is it a good bet? Well, if you kind of look at it from more of a human perspective, I don't know. It's a treacherous trip. Paul has to get on a boat, cross the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, He is shipwrecked, nearly dies along the way. And the man that Paul is appealing to, this guy's name is Nero. And in case you don't know anything about Nero, He is probably the most volatile Roman emperor who ever led from Rome. A good bet? What are the odds of Paul being let go? Well, we just don't know, and Paul didn't know. Nero could have been having a bad day and said, send him into the arena, let him get eaten by animals. And yet, Paul makes this very bet. Why would he do that? Well, we get a little bit of his thinking in Philippians 1, verses 19 through 21. So let's read that together. For I know that as you pray for me, and the Spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, this will lead to my deliverance. For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die, for to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. Now we observed when we opened up this series uh, a, a wisdom principle from Solomon. In Proverbs 23, Solomon says this point, as a 
person thinks in his heart, so he is. We've noted that two people can look at the same situation and they can walk away with totally different moods because they think differently about the situation. In fact, I want to suggest this morning that each one of us has an inner monologue that is recounting our lives to us all the time. It's telling us a story about our lives and sometimes the story is a really bad story and sometimes the story is a good story. But what do you do when the monologue is bad? Imagine Paul's inner monologue getting negative while he's in jail waiting to see if he's gonna live or die. Paul, you did this to yourself. You were in Caesarea, you chose to go appeal to Caesar. It's far more likely that if you'd have remained there that you would have been let go, that you would have been able to go to Rome as a free man and preach the gospel in that sort of way. But now you've done yourself in. You're a dead duck, you're a loser. The monologue, what do I do when these negative voices are saying things to me about my life, my circumstances, my past, things that I can't change, things I can't undo. Um, Psychologist Jessica Coleman says that really there are two things that we can do with thoughts like this when they enter into our mind. One thing that we can do is we can distract. You know what you do with a distraction, right? You think about something else. Uh, I'm thinking negatively. Now I'm going to start thinking about going fishing or something like that. And I have to tell you, this can be a helpful tactic, but here's the thing about negative thoughts. They have a way of creeping back into our minds. She says the other option is to dispute those thoughts. Now, when you dispute those thoughts, she says it's a better option because disputing those thoughts tends to keep the thoughts from coming back to you in the future. How do you dispute thoughts? Well, they say that when you dispute a thought, it's almost like you have to imagine someone outside of yourself has said this thing to you. You're a failure in life. You lost your job. You're never going to add any value to the world. And you have to then kind of take on the role of a lawyer. You, you, you gather all of the evidence. You, you present those pieces of evidence within yourself. You remind yourself of the truth. Now, here's what Paul does for us in Philippians 1. He models this behavior. Look at the things that he's saying about his situation, verse 19, 20, and 20. I know this will lead to my deliverance. I fully hope and expect that I will never be put to shame. My life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. Remember, you are what you think. You are especially what you think about God. All of these terms, deliverance, hope, expectation, bringing honor, these are terms that are positively charged in theological grounding in who God is. For example, deliverance. 
Paul knows that he's going to receive a verdict at some point, but he's not thinking about the verdict that he will receive from Nero. No, he's thinking about the final judgment and envisioning himself standing before the God of the universe and receiving a not guilty because of Christ. Hope and expectation. There's a confidence behind these terms. Uh, Our English usage of hope, of course, doesn't always have confidence. There's a level of uncertainty. We say things like, I hope it will work out for me. I hope the Patriots will win next season. Keep on hoping, right? Biblical hope, though, is 100% confident. 100% because as theologian Bachmuel says, It's based in the fact that God is God and he has underwritten our future. Now the key verse in all of this is verse 21. I mean, everything in Paul's dispute hinges on these verses. And I wanna read it to you from a couple of translations and paraphrases so we get the full flavor. The English standard version, which I have memorized for this verse is for me, To live is Christ, to die is gain. Uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. Alive, I'm Christ's messenger. Dead, I'm his bounty. Life versus even more life, I can't lose. And here's the Rob Wheeler paraphrase. Heads I win, tails I lose. To live is is Christ, to die is gain. Do you realize, believer, that that is the central formula for Christian joy? Everything about Christian joy is wrapped up in the reality that we're betting everything on Christ. Uh, Your present happiness, the happiness you feel as you reflect back on your past, your future happiness, your eternal happiness, Paul is saying this, if you're betting everything on Christ, and I mean really betting everything on Christ, not like kind of betting everything on him, you will win 100% of the time. And the formula only gets messed up when I add to it or replace the center of the formula. Now, some of you this morning may not be experiencing the full measure of joy in your life because you're adding a plus factor to the formula. To live is Christ plus my work, what other people think about me, what experiences I get to experience versus what other people are experiencing right now, Uh, plus whether or not everything in my family is going just the right way. Or worse, you're replacing the center. For me to live is work. And here's what you've just done if that's happened. You've taken the one, the son, who can occupy the center and fill out everything in your life and you've just inserted a black hole into your center. Because any one of those things cannot hold up the weight of your human joy, your human happiness. They can rob you of it. So that's the formula. To live is Christ. 
to die is gain. What's interesting is Paul thinks about this formula. He actually starts kind of debating within himself which side of the formula is better, to, to die is gain, to live is Christ. Look at with me at verses 22 to 23, and he, he goes back and forth. You'll see it there. He says, if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm, I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. Isn't that interesting? You know, which is better, heaven or earth? And, and you know, if you believe in heaven, if you believe in eternity, of course, you're going to be on that side of the formula. That's better. And yet, Paul comes to the conclusion that he has deep, fulfilling purpose in this world right now, right here. In fact, if you don't recognize the deep purpose that God has for you in this world, you're going to screw up that side of the formula. To live is Christ. The words that he uses to describe this purpose is fruitful work. What is fruitful work? Well, without it, your joy will be diminished in this world. God has literally wired you for purpose, for a need to bless others with your life and honor Christ with your life, fruitful work. And if that's missing, then something deep inside of you will be missing. I I love this little book that I just picked up by Henry Cloud, Dr. Henry Cloud, called The Law of Happiness, and he gives us several laws of happiness, and one of them is this. When we realize that we are working for Christ, every task becomes significant and meaningful. So where do I find this fruitful work? Well, it turns out that each and every one of us spends a lion's share of our week doing something. And research indicates that the way you think about that something you're doing will impact your joy in this world. There's three ways people tend to think about work. Some view it as a job. A job is where I go and I earn money so that I can actually go do the things that I really want to do. Other people look at work as a career It's a pathway for upward mobility. It's about my advancement. And a third category of people look at their work, their fruitful labor, as a calling. Now, what is calling? Well, calling is to see the big picture in what you are doing. It's to connect the dots that in this 40-hour, 50-hour however many hours that I'm spending at work, that Christ can use me to bless others and he can provide opportunity for me to influence them. I like this story that Dr. Cloud shares as he's unpacking this about two home builders. One of the home builders looked at their 
work as a job, the other saw it as a calling. The one who looked at it as a job said to him in a counseling session, I hate what I do. Why? Well, because I go and I grind every week and I build these homes and then I get my paycheck and it's a really good paycheck, but it just brings me zero happiness. He sits across from the other home builder. I love what I do. Why? He's contrasting now between the two reports that he's hearing from these two home builders. And this is what the second home builder tells him. He says, it starts when I look at a piece of land from the helicopter. In my mind's eye, I see cul-de-sacs with children playing and green belts with playgrounds where they'll be riding their bikes. And then when we design the interiors of the houses, I meet with the architects and I make sure that the homes are planned in such a way where there will be space for people to gather together, connect with one another. He says, I envision fireplaces with stockings hanging at Christmas time where kids are gathered. I look at the stairwell of the home and imagine that teenage girl walking down in her beautiful prom dress the first time to meet her date. When I think about how we are creating communities and homes where people will build their lives, their families, their friendships, what could have more meaning than that? Heads, I win. Tails, you lose. Finding a calling, seeing your purpose connected with the greater work of what God's doing in the world as a means of serving Jesus Christ. In Colossians 3.23, Paul says, work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Now, this calling is connected with your natural gifts, passions, and talents. And the interesting thing about calling is, of course, you don't have to just do it professionally. You can do calling as a in a volunteer capacity. In fact, the people who tend to have found their calling say, I would do this for free. I would do this without a title. I've come to the conclusion that I'm a pastor for that reason. Now you might be thinking, well, duh. But hear me out. I would be a pastor in some way, shape, or form, even if I did not have a title or did not receive a paycheck from doing it. I find myself experiencing deep gladness as I'm pastoring people. And what, what is that? Well, pastoring is caring for people. It's modeling Christ to them. It's walking with them, loving them, providing spiritual wisdom and leadership. It's communicating the message of the word of God, sometimes even when no one asked for it, right? You know, as I look out at a congregation like this, I know for a fact that I'm not the only one with this calling. I know there are people within this church that love pastoring other people even again, if it's not a title, if it's not a position, you just want to care for people, shepherd them, love them in that sort of way. Well, guess what? This calling is all over the place in the various fields and, and services that we can do in this world. Police work, pilots, accountants, nurses, 
Sunday school teachers, musicians, people who just love helping other people with their tasks and serving them. One author says this, everyone should see himself or herself as being in the Lord's work all day, every day. To live is Christ. Now, it's all about this though. <laughs> Living with others for others. This fruitful work that Paul's engaging in is not just like tasks for the sake of tasks. It's not just about checking my boxes because it makes me feel good because I got things done. It's always got this people dimension associated with it. Listen to how he speaks to the Philippians in verses 24 through 26. I love this. He says, for your sakes, remember for him it's better to go to heaven but for your sakes, it's better that I continue to live. Knowing this, I am convinced that I will remain alive so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. And when I come to you again, you will have even more reason to take pride in Christ Jesus because of what he is doing through me. Life is all about living with others and for others, Paul saw this in his work. He cared deeply for people. As he was going about the work, he was also connecting the work with the people's faces in his mind's eye that he loved. That is essential to the to live is Christ life. I love this other law that Dr. Cloud gives us, which correlates with this. He says, God has not constructed us to be fueled by accomplishments. He has constructed us to be fueled by love. How do I express this love in this world in tangible ways? Well, I keep coming back to these points and I'm gonna be a broken record. Love cannot be lived out in general. I can't love everyone from afar. No, love thrives in specificity. I know the names of the people I'm loving. It thrives in proximity. I'm close to the people that I'm loving. It requires connectivity. I connect with them. In fact, Dr. Cloud would say this, connection is perhaps the most foundational aspect of human life, being connected to God being connected to other people. You see this all over the place in the New Testament. When the church is described, the church is called a body, family. We're described as a temple being built with stones, but all the stones are linked together. Uh, we're, talk, we're, we're told in the New Testament that as God is building the church, his big purpose and ambition for the church is to knit the hearts of the church together. We're told that we must maintain the bonds of unity of the church. It's all about connection. Dr. Cloud says, meaningful, deep connections with other people help you to get to the good things that you desire, as well as help you overcome the negative patterns, behaviors, and syndromes that are hurting you. And research, of course, validates this. God's wired you like this. Uh, your brain, your heart, your soul, 
your body, respond to relationships with others. Relationships is where you find your fuel, your motivation, your sustaining power. Your brain literally is wired this way. You receive um, brain uh, chemicals that, that increase your happiness when you're connecting with other people. One piece of research that he cites that he just loves was um, there were these researchers that were testing stress levels in monkeys. And what they would do is they would isolate a monkey and they would assault the monkey with stressors, whether it's flashing lights, loud noises, other factors that would cause stress. They would monitor them and you know, get a baseline for their stress hormones. And then, keeping all factors the same, lights, noises, other stressors, they did one thing different. They put another monkey in the cage. And you know what happened? Their stress hormones reduced by 50%. Now think about this. Isn't that what is so insidious about things like depression, anxiety, fear, social sins like bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness, gossip, all of these things isolate people from other people. The reality is, is when you're experiencing these harmful, negative behavior, attitudes, whatever it is, is you actually need, here's what you need, another monkey in the cage with you. (laughs) Why do you think we talk all the time at church about the need to come together regularly, do things that might seem mundane, like grabbing coffee with people, telling stories that happened through the week, getting into small group programs, kids being in Sunday school classes, uh, youth groups, um, inviting people over to your home and sharing Christian hospitality together where you're talking and laughing and connecting with these people. Paul lived live his life with other monkeys in the cage and it greatly blessed his life. It gave him a why, a reason to keep going and operating and doing ministry. You got it? To live is Christ, fruitful work, living with others for others. But what about the other side of the equation? To die is gain. When I think about that, you know, Paul, again, he's saying, heads I win, tails you lose. But from a human's perspective, is death really gain? I want to live longer. There's billions of dollars of research spent every single year on longevity, youthfulness. I want to stay alive as long as I can. How do I get to the thought process that to die is gain and not just complete loss? Well, Paul gives us the answer in verse 23. I'm torn between two desires. Two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. Now look at that language, I long to go. 
In other translations, the word is depart. It's a beautiful word picture. It's a metaphor. It's envisioning a ship that has been in a faraway land and is finally turning in the direction of home, setting sail, and going. You know, Paul, as he's thinking about to die is gain, he's thinking about home. Home. When you find home, it's really special. Uh, They say when you first move to the Cape that eventually there's going to be this change that happens within you where you'll no longer want to cross the bridge. And it's funny because it kind of is true. The longer you live here, you're like, I'll spend 20 more bucks at the store to get that thing as long as I don't have to go over the bridge. I've talked to some of you about your experience. You travel and when you travel, there's this touch point with the Cape. As you're coming home, perhaps business or pleasure, whatever it is, and the touch point, of course, is the bridge. The canal comes into view. You get over to the middle section of the bridge and you just kind of, you exhale, because you know, for whatever reason, it's just a little less chaotic on this side of the bridge than it is on that side of the bridge. To die is gain home. For Paul, departing, going, death is the bridge. You know, interestingly enough, the reason that Paul longed for home was because he had caught a glimpse of heaven in his life. If you look at this story in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it's told that I don't know how it quite happened, whether he was actually translated to heaven or he had a vision, but he went. He saw paradise, the abode of God, and he heard words that he was not even permitted to speak. And so he had had this glimpse of heaven, and I can't imagine that a day didn't go by where he didn't think about home. Now, maybe we don't get that glimpse of heaven, but I believe that we can cultivate an appetite for it. It comes with opening your Bible, reading about it, imagining it, engaging your sanctified imagination. I wonder what it's going to be like. You know, they say that, and this is from C.S. Lewis, that when you have a longing for something deep within yourself, a longing that cannot be satisfied here, it must be a longing that could be fulfilled somewhere else. Heaven. It's your home. It's what you were made for. Heads I win, tails you lose. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Let's pray. Lord, as we think about the word that we've been presented with this morning from Philippians 1, and this great equation, this great formula for joy, to live is Christ, to die is gain, uh, we pray that we, as your people, would center our happiness and joy on Christ Jesus. To live is Christ. You have a purpose in this world for us a calling, 
You want us to serve others with our lives and, and to fill our lives with connection to people and love for people. It's not about our accomplishments. It's about the love that we extend. Lord, to die is gain. We're not home. We're citizens of another country. And um, this desire that we feel in our heart for what Paul calls in this text, the far better is pointing our ships towards home. So we praise you. We praise you that we can have joy now. We praise you that this joy will be orders of magnitude greater in the worlds to come. To live is Christ. To die is gain.